are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I was invited to preach a bit last minute because of a body modification just above my inner elbows. I have a tattoo. Well, two tattoos, actually. These are the first tattoos I've ever gotten, and still the only. And I never thought I would be someone who had tattoos. But as my ordination rapidly approached, I wanted to do something that served as an outward sign of the vow I was undertaking for the rest of my life and beyond, which led me to tattoos of one of my favorite set of verses in the Bible. It's one of those verses that's been on cheesy Christian greeting cards, t-shirts, Pinterest pages, and devotionals since the market for those things began. I first heard it, or rather, it first really stuck with me in middle school on a mission trip to Southern Virginia. The organization that led this mission trip was a non-denominational, meaning largely Southern Baptist, summer camp organization, and our week included Bible studies in addition to our service work. Being from Washington, D.C., we were pretty out of our element in Southern Virginia, and my very Episcopal friends and I were overwhelmed, to say the least. We were taken aback by pop music and lack of altar during the services. We were confused about what felt like to us kind of more rote memorization rather than interpretation of the Bible. Most of all, we were very about the lack of communion at services. Just imagine middle schoolers being angry about <laughs> It was a really hard week for us. We were trapped in Southern Virginia and regarding other people with a distance and skepticism. And then, during one of these Bible studies, we read the gospel for today as our scripture, and something clicked. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I wanted to know so much more about this passage. Why these elements? Why this wording? My counselor and the other kids looked at me like I had two heads as I wanted to know the Greek translation. I now know that this was a sign of going into the right profession. <laughs> but I also carried it with me that week. To be salt and light. At a glance, it felt like a call to Christian leadership. To be a light certainly meant something like a beacon, an example that others could see and use. To be inviting, bright, and present. I saw that attitude in my fellow campers and was inspired by it. It made me want to be like them a little more, at least understand them a little more, even if they didn't know anything about communion. <laughs> but I couldn't figure out salt. Something about it felt sharp-edged, different, and full of possibility. It stuck with me, the notion of being salt and light. Anytime I've heard it in the lectionary or in other contexts, it felt like it was calling me into something, out of whatever funk I might have been in. By the time I got to seminary, I knew it was a passage I wanted to interpret more and spent time on it in different courses as I focused on translation and interpretation. What made these the things that Jesus focused on? Why should we care about them now? There was imagery of salt and light that I carried with me throughout my life, and as I approached my ordination, I wanted to mark the 
resemble the kind of glass body and a metal top. On my left arm, I have a tall, thin candle sitting in a candlestick with a flare face, a small flame lit on the candle. I had originally wanted a light bulb to signify the light of the world, but it didn't feel quite right. Light felt like it needed to be tethered to something more primeval, more ancient, more ancestral. The notion of a lamp upon a lampstand felt apparent for me, and this brings me to the deeper parts of this passage, why I find it so relevant for me and for all of us as Christians to be salt and light. <laughs> this second image of light in the scripture reading feels less difficult to understand and connect with than salt for a few reasons, including how it brings to mind, for me and maybe some of you, popular songs and stories of childhood, like this little light of mine. In verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Before I focus on light, I want to think about world. The term is particular. It's used in the Bible a few times to signify something unique. But this original word refers to matters related to human experience. Being a light, then, is meant specifically for other human beings. The gifts given to us by God must particularly be extended to our fellow humans. We're meant to share the care and brightness of God's mercy to us through our words and actions, living by example. So says Jesus in the next sentence. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. This man-made concept of a group of people living, praying, and working alongside each other cannot be obstructed from view as it bustles about. Everyone can see it from its higher plane, and especially as it is a buzz of activity. Over a thousand years later, in 1630, this verse is most famously repeated by settler John Winthrop as he describes the future of Massachusetts, saying, We shall be a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. I think that's a bit zealous, but... In our daily lives, God and the world are watching. And it is our duty on this earth to serve, love, and uplift one another with our talents and dreams. While Winthrop, very puritanically, continues by suggesting that this is the only means by which God will ever maybe love us, I think this verse is instead more of a loving reminder to live out the lives God has given each of us through the other commands that we've been given, to love, care, and serve others with grace and with joy. We can't hide the things that make us unique, special, loving, or strong. If we lessen ourselves for anyone, or allow others to be mistreated, we're not obeying this instruction that God has given us, but are instead ignoring our call. We aren't perfect, and Jesus isn't telling us that we have to be the city on the hill, but instead to know that we're here, we're present, and have the opportunity to others. Jesus' own line says it too. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and gives light to all in the house. It's an excellent allegory, and the verse continues to speak for itself, that we must let our light shine before others, so they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Our Christian siblinghood is the ultimate evangelism, as we share the good news of Christ's resurrection and God's love with our neighbors and friends. We're able to show others the true 
loving our neighbors, and using our unique abilities to glorify God. If God has made this light through the molding of a candle or creation of our bodies and souls, our lampstands might be our communities who lift us up. We're meant to share and show what makes us unique and capable, and rely on our loved ones, friends, and neighbors to hold on to that support so we can continue to share our talents with others. So, that's all done and busted, right? But what about the salt? That's where we're so bothered as a kid and still come to wrestle with as an adult. It feels curious to not only let our light shine bright within our communities, but to be a little salty as well. As the verse says, you are the salt of the earth. This time we hear the word earth instead of world. In our saltiness, God is not asking us to only exist in the human realm, but to allow ourselves to be present and This verse considers what it means to be part of an ecological and cosmological realm. It's not just about strictly relating to human experience, but instead to something beyond our comprehension, into the dirt and the heavens. The term for world is also used in the Lord's Prayer and instances that connect more directly to the land and to the cosmos. So in this way, our saltiness must be experienced by all creatures and beings beyond our human we are salt, something that comes from the physical earth that must be raised into the heavens as well. The word salt in this passage has a few meanings or uses, including seasoning for food and sacrifice, fertilizer for land, wisdom and grace within speech, and acting as a symbol of lasting conquer. This last meaning, lasting conquer, comes from salt's use as a preservation and protection from spoiling and comes from a subsequent inspired ritual in the ancient world, and still in some places today, where two who are agreeing on a contract partake in salt together. This is seen in Leviticus and Numbers, for example, where God commands that the contracts are finalized and agreed upon with the ingestion of salt, which seals the agreement, preserving it as it is described. We hear about this in our Isaiah passage today, when we are charged to loose the bonds of injustice, to let the oppressed go free, to share bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into our houses. This is a remembrance of the covenants, agreements, that have been sealed with the salt of protection and are a reminder to us to further preserve this ancestral covenant by doing what we can to help our neighbors, especially those who are the most vulnerable. It is the duty of each of us to help those in pain and suffering, especially the ones who would otherwise go unnoticed. Of course, this can be overwhelming, but that's why we have church, and why we do this in community. Each small action is a recollection of this covenant. So, to be salt, we remember the ancient contracts of our ancestors in Scripture, whose covenants with God lay the foundation for our own relationships as well. Their steadfastness within their complicated lives can inspire us to renew and re-engage with these promises humanity made and we must honor. Perhaps being salt, then, means we are meant to preserve and take care of things, not just to honor the contracts our ancestors agreed upon to be loving and responsible beings, but to recall specifically that God has made us stewards of the earth, and it's our responsibility to honor creation and care for it. We should protect our lands, preserve them, and save them from industrialization, 
all too relevant in a world where our national parks are in jeopardy and our climate is experiencing an unparalleled crisis. God is calling on us to preserve it for future generations, to be the salt, the preservers of the earth. It might also mean for things to flourish. If salt was used on arable land as fertilizer, it's a symbol of growth and wealth to use our gifts to create change, make life more interesting and plentiful for all creatures and creation. We can be the ones to make a difference for our neighbors, to do something extra that helps others feel welcome, encouraged, and supported. Not only should we preserve the lands, we can honor our neighbors and uplift them with the resources and uniqueness each of us possesses. Being salt, then, might mean that we add an element, something flavorful that creates a unique richness to the lives of our friends and neighbors. Our individual wisdom cannot be taken for granted. If we don't use them, we might lose the things that make us special. Jesus says that if salt loses its taste, it will be trampled underfoot. And while that seems extreme, that we might be cast out if we do something wrong, I'm not sure that's entirely what Jesus is saying. In reading the scripture, the word for taste has less to do with quality of flavor and instead refers to more of a foolishness of man. So, if enacted foolishly, we might be reprimanded. Foolishness might refer to ignorance, hatred, violence, or other wrongdoings that we know are against God's plan for us. And we know that as we see in other stories from Jesus, we won't be cast away. It's a charge to return, to remain, to be steadfast in the midst of all. When we fall or falter, we're reminded of our covenant with God. We can apologize and repent and experience forgiveness, but have to extend it to our neighbors as well. We have to extend the grace as we share our gifts. As we grow, falter along the way, and try to live as God has called us, we can provide wisdom, grace, preservation, and dimensionality to all of creation. We can give life a richness extended to us first by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We can take the complexity of covenants and wrap them into the charge to invest our efforts into preservation and restoration, along with uniqueness and tenacity. We can be a little salty. We can 